Dr. Julie Andrews is a proud Yorta Yorta and Wurundjeri Woi Warung descendant who is based in Melbourne. She was born in Marutna, a small town near Shepparton in Victoria. Her research and expertise is strongly aligned to her Aboriginal community and heritage. However, she has research interests also in mobility, identity, community development and wellbeing, along with higher education. Her Yorta Yorta and Melbourne Aboriginal communities are at the centre of her work. Dr Andrews lectures in Aboriginal studies and is convener of Aboriginal studies at La Trobe University. She is a very significant Australian, a very significant Australian woman, a very proud Yorta Yorta woman. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to spend some time with her and get to know her. Let's go. Julie, thank you so much for, for joining us for a conversation. I really, really appreciate you sharing the time with us. Um, I wonder whether you might, um, we, we might begin this conversation and by sharing with our listeners just a bit about your story, your personal story, your family story, your land, your country. Um, let, 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 let's jump into it, shall we? Yeah, sure. That's that's what you you've just described. What you want me to talk about? That's that's a very um, comp, you know, like extensive range of topics to discuss. And um, as an Aboriginal person and a proud member of my family, I usually speak from my situation and experience from growing up within my family because that's what centres me, but also that's what gives me the direction and drive to um, continue my work in higher education and bringing that back to the community uh, as well for the Aboriginal community. So it's, it's um, history and culture and identity and philosophy and connection to country and respect uh, is uh, all kind of elements that the Aboriginal person uh, really thrives on. And it's one of their goals to find out about themselves, you know, that centres them as well. So um, I'm happy to speak on all of those topics. So you might have to help me a bit and give That's me some okay. direction. Because okay. I've got so much cultural luggage with me <laughs> that I bring. Um, Oh, no, that's, 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 that's fantastic. Do you know what, what we might do? I might start with, um, for our podcast listeners, Julie's background at the moment is a picture of a football team with a couple of premiership pennants. Why don't, you, why don't you start by talking us into what that picture is showing us and then we can sort of tease out a few things from there. Well, for the listeners, it's actually a black and white photo taken on the Aboriginal reserve that... Uh, the Yorta Yorta people uh, have a very strong connection to and we call it our home and the reserve is called Kamragunja and this Kamragunja had its own football team and the, the photo that's behind me includes my grandfather and his brothers, two of his brothers, but also men from a lot of Aboriginal families that still reside and are known amongst the Yorta Yorta people. So this team is known in the Yorta Yorta and Shepparton area and Barma area as the Invincibles. They were excelling in football and won two premierships. And there's a kind of um, 
disappointing outcome for all of this. These are all men that lived on Kamragunja that loved their football. Many had to run or walk to their games. Um, and there's all these lovely stories passed down in families about how their ancestors would travel to the game and they would win. So uh, the disappointing end of that story is that the rules were changed on them in that no, there was a certain age group introduced in the league which excluded a lot of the men because they were fathers. They were, you know, I think there was like, I think they, you know, it was a lot younger age group that was introduced for their team. So um, they didn't have enough players because of that change to continue their team. So if you could see the photo behind me, you can see that they're all men that are in anywhere to their late 30s or late 20s. So yeah, that would have been devastating. But the strength of resistance that I love in Aboriginal communities about their history and pushing back on this kind of injustices that continually played out upon them when they were um, forced to live on Aboriginal reserves is what the community holds dear to them today, particularly in the community at Shepparton. Now, there is an Aboriginal football and netball team that's been... Um, you know, established and it's as a part of the league for Shepparton. It's called Rumbalara Football and Netball Aboriginal Association. And they connect their story to this story, the Invincibles, the Aboriginal Cumbra Aboriginal Cumbragunja football team that were excluded from the league because they were too good. So Can I Julie, the, the, the story there is just, it's, it's just, it's just gives us a fantastic point to come in and start exploring all of those, or a, a whole range of things. There are four things I'm hearing there that I, I think that we, we could tease out in the next few minutes if we wanted to, or go in a different direction too. It's fine to do that. Um, I'm really interested in Yorta Yorta country, and at some point it would be great for you to tell us a little bit about the country itself. I'm interested in football as well too and its importance. And, and for, the, for those people outside of Australia who are listening, we're talking about Australian rules football or what became Australian rules football in the end, um, which is something which is distinctive to the culture of Australia as a whole. Um, I'm interested in the notion of resistance and the way in which resistance is expressed and the different cultural forms of that. Um, and I'm interested in the notion of where success is met by the unfair imposition of new barriers. I think there are four really, really interesting things that we can talk about um, to start with at the very least. Um, why don't we start with Yorta Yorta country? Do you want to tell us a little bit about the land around Shepparton and, and, and so on and so on? I think that, that, that'd be a great place to start. Well, Yorta Yorta country is beautiful country and it's situated along the Murray River and that's along the border of New South Wales and Victoria. And the Kamragunja Aboriginal Reserve, that um, is a big part of Yorta Yorta, that's where a lot of Aboriginal people um, were placed under government legislation after they had left the missionaries who had set up the Aboriginal mission station called Maloga. 
Now, Maloga and Kamraganja are both Aboriginal, well, Yorta Yorta words. So, um, Kamraganja means my home. So, when all the Aboriginal, when all Yorta Yorta moved on to Kamraganja, there, there were quite a few, hundred. And they set up a lovely community there where they would have dance and, you know, um, there was a football club, there was tennis courts, um, you know, uh, it was just a big community and the kinship structure around that remain the same today in Shepparton. And, and, so and all those you... Aboriginal family groups that you had on Cumbragunja are the um, direct kinship to all the Yorta Yorta families that you see today. So, today. If, so thanks, Julie. So if I get the sequence of this right, we've got Yorta Yorta who are just doing their thing, living along the Murray River, et cetera, et cetera. Then at some point in the history, white folk come along and they're pushed out of that country and then they're resettled onto reserves eventually through the mission stations and so on, where um, they establish their own communities and start to build a, a, a culture based on, I guess, taking the best opportunity that they can in that is in, in can inherently... I clarify what you just said yep. there Bill? yeah sure they weren't they were doing their thing they were living yep. Yep. Um, they were living on their land but missionaries at the time were um, because it was such a dark dangerous place in Australia it was the wild frontier Aboriginal people were being shot they had no rights mm. they had no protection by law um, and they, their traditional lands were, had been taken over by European settlers. Mm -hmm. So they, they were, in fact, classed as trespassers on their own traditional lands. So they were at, the, you know, they were, they were very much, um, they became refugees on their own traditional lands. So missionary, missionaries arrived and they were actually just gathering up Aboriginal people and taking them on and setting up mission stations. But the trade-off there was that Aboriginal people had to give up their culture and learn about religion. So that meant they couldn't speak their language, they couldn't practice their marriage, their traditional marriage and kinship structures that were a very powerful force in their social organisation as a community but as a cultural group they weren't allowed to practice making their artifacts they weren't allowed to practice hunting and techniques like that and they weren't allowed to speak their language so what we see today is the remnants of the missionaries coming the missionaries could only feed them for so long and then government legislations became were enacted around all different parts of australia every state and territory have different legislations for aboriginal people so the Yorta Yorta then became under government legislation and moved on to Kamragunja, which was in government reserve. From there, they were managed. They had to live under laws that wouldn't let them leave the missions. They couldn't get employment. By now, we're talking about the late 1800s, moving, you know, so, um, and Australia was a thriving. You really have to situate Australia where they were when you look at Aboriginal people's disadvantage. So the rest of Australia were powering ahead while Aboriginal people were maintained inside Aboriginal, well, government reserves 
um, that some Aboriginal people refer to as concentration camps. So why they referred to that as concentration camps is because although they were living in houses, they had no control. They had to have uh, weekly inspections inside their homes where the mission manager, which is just virtually a public servant, who was probably unemployable anywhere else and usually an alcoholic, had the run of the, the mission station, the mission or the government reserve, and his wife would come in and check the house for the Aboriginal women to see if they kept it up clean. Otherwise, they'd be reported. To and then the you know and the men were not allowed to leave the missions. You had to sign in and sign out of a book if you wanted to leave. If you um, had that resistance around you, where you kicked up and wanted to argue about how bad the situation was, and it was bad because they only had tea, flour, sugar, fat, and and really off meat that was given to them as rations on the mission. So if you look at Aboriginal health situation today, start at the government reserves, because that's where, the, that's where diabetes, poor health, all this kind of stuff started happening. You know, a lot of people today think that Aboriginal health is just an overnight thing. No, it's generational. And that's why we talk about tra transgenerational trauma. So government reserves, they kind of like, rounded up Aboriginal people, maintained and controlled them until probably the 1950s. But while they were on those missions, the resistance of the Aboriginal people across Australia was, was um, at the highest level. They were under complete surveillance the whole time they were on these missions by the government and the managers. The managers would report them to the government and they could be kicked off the missions and never to return again and see their families. The other thing is, this is when stolen generations were starting because the legislations also empowered those, um, the government reserve managers to report the children to the, who were, read, you know, so they, that's how they got records of where the children and who they were. And that's when the police would arrive and take them and remove them away to become domesticated from any age from eight years old up. So Julie, so Julie, if I, if I put all of this together, because part of the conversation that we're going to be talking about is, 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 is the moving forward and the use of education to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm not Aboriginal. I'm my, as we've spoken about before, I'm, I'm, I'm the son of immigrants to this country from other parts of the world who experienced um, their own, uh, 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 encounters with dispossession. But the reality of what you're telling us is that there is a brutal, inhumane and systemic reality of dispossession in the past of every Aboriginal Australian and in the past of our country that we, uh, as, as a nation, we confront the reality that this treatment occurred it was deliberate, it occurred over generations, and there are legacies for it that last through to today. There's also a reality that while this was going on, there was a program of 
cultural, shall I say, renewal or, or, or cultural resistance is perhaps a better way of putting it in the face of this systematic dispossession and a whole lot of other expressions of resistance and, and success. Is, is, is that a reasonable summation? Yes. Um, now, when we talk about resistance, that has come from um, being disempowered. So Aboriginal people were not, were not um, victims, you know. They didn't have that victim mentality. They knew what was going on. And this is what the resistance is about. They knew government legislation because they lived on it, they, under it, you know. Um, they were threatened by government legislation continually. So this resistance was to government legislation. So, and that surveillance that empowered this legislation, brought about through police, government managers, and the threat of being locked up in jail, but also removed from um, their families with the children. So the resistance was um, to keep themselves as a people and a family together. And, you know, when I talk to my students today, and this is a lot of, one of the themes that we use a lot in Aboriginal studies, is that the past is in the present and the present is in the past. We cannot escape what has happened in the history of Australia. It doesn't matter how many waves of migrants have come here. What it means is that you still have to take on board the platform that was set up for you to arrive here. And that is the disempowerment of Aboriginal people and what's happened to them. You know, and we're still teaching and giving guidance about that to Australia and worldwide now. But when we get back to education, like you said, on those missions, they did have teachers but my mum, my mother was born on Kamragunja and her education only went up to grade three. Now, this is the kind of legislation um, that empowered Aboriginal people. So they had to form a resistance to survive. So when you, when you see all the Aboriginal marching in the streets and, and the, the, the slogan, we have survived, we had to do, we survived it ourselves. We had to, um, work out frameworks and ways to become empowered and keep our community together and get our culture back. And that was all done by us. I mean, the government or white Australia would never know where to start. And do, do you think people still feel as though they're surviving? Um, maybe those in jail would feel that. Maybe the stolen generations would feel that. So, you, you know, you can't have a blanket approach to when you're understanding Aboriginal people. And I've, I've grown up with non-Aboriginal people. I know what they say about us. I know how they think. And I know how they why, you know, they grapple with trying to understand, you know, oh, the Aborigines, you know. This is the kind of... Um, Australia, we, there's two Australias for Aboriginal people, the white Australia and the Aboriginal Australia. And we have to live in both. And we probably feel the best and most comfortable in our own Aboriginal Australia because it's our country. We love going on country and everything. It gives us healing. 
It gives us all the cultural stuff that we wouldn't get from white Australia. I mean, you know, if it's when you're living in white Australia, it, it's, it is like a split identity for Aboriginal people and probably for a lot, a lot of other cultural groups and migrants where you have your culture, but you also have to live mainstream. So for Aboriginal people, the trauma of being Aboriginal has been so long over generations. And that's what people, you know, that word survival can be applied to a lot of people's history. But it's also, you know, you've got to look at Aboriginal people that are trying to survive today, you know. Um, now, I might have a title of doctor, but if I lost my job, where would I be? Probably not as high up as what other people um, who have doctors and are non that are non-Aboriginal, because they've got this generational um, kind of uh, financial security that they've been able to achieve in their families. Aboriginal families are very different. They work very different. Uh, we have this approach of being all one together. So if I'm successful, if I kick a goal, if we get back to football, if I kick a goal, it helps others kick a goal. You know, we all, we all survive together, you know. And one um, Aboriginal man that is quite senior, he always says, you know, if I can give a, a leg up to someone in the Aboriginal community, I will. So we've had to do that, you know. Um, whatever we do, we've had to do it and bring our community with us. If, because we can't enjoy our success if someone, our second or first cousin is locked up in jail. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, that word survival is quite a loaded one for us because it means a lot of things. I understand that. It's, it's, um, I'm, I'm finding it helpful to focus more on listening than talking at the moment. Um, uh, I want to take you back to that story and again, just of, 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 of that particular football team, if I can, because there are things that come out of that that are, are really helpful. Um, the first is the, the story of football itself, the story of Australian rules football. I was in a school recently and there was a lovely picture book there for, um, for children, primary age children. I'm thinking late primary age children, probably, probably about sort of 10 years old. And it was telling the story of Tom Wills, who is the white Australian who the story says invented football. Well, this is a, this is a book pitched at children saying, actually, whatever, whatever it was, this is something that he learned in his childhood from the local Indigenous folk and the kids that he was playing with there. And that's a, that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? You know, it's, a, it's one of the most important stories in Australian social culture is about the invention of our own brand of football. And yet trying to find the Indigenous origins of the particular type of game that it was, it's only a fairly recent thing and it's only just starting to come in. So it's, I'm intrigued about the notion of telling story and telling truth through story how, how do we unpick stories that are meaningful to people but untrue and how we introduce truth and, and help people to move forward? Well, well, that gets back to Australian history, doesn't it? It's never taught in the schools. 
you know, Aboriginal history is never taught or our Aboriginal contribution to this country is never taught in the schools. And that, that therein lies the problem straight away. Getting back to Wills, he, he grew up in Gundijmara country. So what he observed there was a game Mangrook, which is a game that's played in Victoria with the possum skin ball. And it was culturally set up to um, uh, represent the totem groups of Aboriginal tribes and clans. So Mangrook, and this is where Aboriginal researchers uh, have argued for about the last 30 years, that the origins of AFL football and VFL come from Mangrook. Because when Wills uh, grew up in Gundijmara with those Aboriginal kids that he played with, um, when they'd catch that Mangrook ball, they'd yell out, Mark. And that word is still used today in AFL footy. So every game when a man catches or a woman catches the ball, it's Mark. Oh, what a nice Mark, you know, that kind of thing. And if we look at the way the teams are organised today, the magpies, the eagles and all that, they're all totems of Aboriginal people. So um, I wish they had an emu team because that's my totem. But um, when we look at the origins of football, the exclusion of the connection to Marnbrook is still um, existing today by um, non-Aboriginal people who research the game. They will not make that connection or accept it. Not everyone will, will because it's in their psyche that they haven't been taught that from growing up in schools, that there is any way possible that um, what we see around us has the origins of Aboriginal people because there's this thing inside their head that tells them Aboriginal people have not, not done nothing for this country. We've done it. They didn't invent the wheel. They didn't do, they didn't write their language. They didn't have a written word, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's this cultural, um, you know, way of blocking understanding between black and white in this country that is the problem today. And if we look at the way education is taught in the schools, primary and secondary, it's the bare minimum of what Aboriginal people have done for this country. We didn't get accepted as being returned soldiers and, and returned, you know, the, our contribution to Australian war until like 20 years ago. Now it's all over the place for Anzac Day. Prior to that, Aboriginal men and women were excluded from that. That's a prime example of how Aboriginal, Aboriginal people have been excluded from this society. From this I, think, I, think, I think, though, it's also a prime example of how um, we can begin to change that story. Because, as you said, you know, when, if, I, if I think back to my own service as a young soldier, this, that, wasn't, that wasn't part of the, of the narrative. Now I'm an old soldier. It is part of the narrative now. And, mm -hmm. and it's becoming there. So what that says to me that there's some hope that we've got a chance of changing the story over time. As I said, this I, came from Aboriginal people, though. Absolutely, of course it you did. You know, this hope that you're talking about only comes from Aboriginal people because they have the stories. But did you know that the Boer War, they sent Aboriginal trackers over there, six of them, and left them there. The government left them there. 
and they, they never came home and they had to have families over there. And the reason Aboriginal people found that out before it became printed in, in media stories and everything today, you can Google it if you want. Aboriginal people were in a taxi and the taxi driver said, where you come from? And they said, Australia. And they said, oh. And they said, we're Aboriginal. And they said, my grandfather was Aboriginal. He was from Australia. They brought him here for the Boer War. So you see how this connection of stories is important for our family histories to come together. And I can honestly say that that grandfather made sure his family knew his connection so they could connect back to home. So that, that tells us even more about the importance of all of us of listening and listening to the voices and making sure that we pay respect to the stories that are, that, that are coming forward. As I said, I... I or make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, I mean, the reason they left those trackers there is because they, did, they weren't classed as Aboriginal citizens, well, weren't classed as citizens. So immigration, migration policies blocked them from coming back. Well, it's a, it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it seems to me, Julie, that if we tell the truth in the... We can't, we can't undo the telling of untruths in the past, but we can tell the truth in the present. That's, that's, that, it seems to me that that can be part of, uh, of our social contract in for, for education regarding Indigenous matters is that we can at least tell the truth. You need to know the history and the truth if you want to live in this country. That's my belief. Absolutely. Absolutely. Julie, in the second of our conversations, we're going to come back and talk about how we do that at different levels in Australian, uh, in the Australian education system. We're going to talk about education for Indigenous Australians as well as education for all Australians. Thank you very much for your time with us today. Really looking forward to the next conversation that we get to have. Julie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you hear.